This morning we're in Nehemiah chapter 5. I'm glad to be here. I'm glad to be in Nehemiah chapter 5, and I'm glad that you're here this morning. And we're going to see this morning in part 4 of our series called Together that the greatest threat comes from within. The greatest threat comes from within. Nehemiah, you know, he's been, he's been chugging along after leaving the king's palace and, and coming to Judah and trying to rally the troops and get the city refortified and protected. And he's run into stuff. And now we get to chapter 5, only to find that they were worried about people from the outside coming in, when in reality, what they had to be doing was to be tending to their own hearts. You know, somewhere in the Bible, right, it says, guard your heart, because that's the most important thing. And it was true in Nehemiah's day, it's true on a small level for me and you, that the greatest threat sometimes resides within, and it's true on a macro level. It's true in churches and in communities and businesses and cultures that the greatest threat is not often from the outside, but it's from within side, where we have to guard our hearts and we have to guard what it is that God's put inside of us. That's why Paul wrote uh, that we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. We don't wrestle against each other. We wrestle against principalities and powers that seek to come in and divide our heart and take our heart away from God. That's why Jesus wrote, uh, wrote, he didn't write, he said and John wrote that he wanted us to be unified. He wanted there to be unity within the body of believers because division can creep in. The greatest threat is really from within. And that's why Jesus said, if you'll have unity, then people will know that you're a follower of mine, that you follow me. I I put down a few common threats here, and this is true in Nehemiah's day, and I see that it's true in our day as well, the threat of power, right? We want to have power, and usually we exert that power over others. The threat of prejudice, that we would prejudge something about somebody, or that we would take a group of people and put prejudge a label on all of them. And, you know, none of us really wants to be in a group to be labeled. We want to be seen as individual, and we want to be seen as somebody who has something special and unique to offer, not just a group to be labeled. Greed is another common threat where I want it. We see that over and over again in Scripture. We see it with our kids when we're raising kids. We see it in our own heart, where we want what we want. And then divisiveness. That's the, the, that's the permission, per, pernicious poison. Pernicious poison. Divisiveness is. It, it creeps in, it divides, and conquers. It's a, it's a poison, it's a weed in a church, in a family, in a company, in a business, on a team, in a culture, in a society divisiveness. You're on this side and you're on that side. It it breaks things down. So your greatest threat is within you. And again, that's why God says to guard your heart. And that's also why he says to love your neighbor. Because if we're busy loving our neighbor, we can't be fighting against our neighbor, right? If we're busy loving our neighbor, we can't be thinking about power and be thinking about greed and prejudice if we're busy loving our neighbor. 
So God tells us to guard our hearts and to love our neighbors. Two good commandments. So internal threats remind me of what Jesus said in Matthew 15. He called to the crowd, he called the crowd to him, and he said to them, Listen and understand. What goes into somebody's mouth, that doesn't defile them. It's what comes out of the heart, out of the mouth, from the heart that defiles us. So the threat is within. The threat is within. And in Nehemiah's passage here, in Nehemiah chapter 5, we see a threat within as he was trying to go after the project that God called him to do. As we as a church step out toward a vision of making a difference, of actually doing something that will help somebody other than us here in the room, there's going to be a threat, and it's going to come from within. It's going to come from our hearts. And if we're forewarned, we're forearmed, and Nehemiah is going to forewarn us here in this passage. Chapter 1 of Nehemiah chapter 5. By the way, it is an event in your Bible app. If you want to look under your Bible app and click Other and then hit Events, you'll see the notes there as well. Now the men and their wives raised a great outcry against their fellow Jews. Some were saying, we and our sons and daughters are numerous. In order for us to eat and stay alive, we must get grain. There was a problem in the land. There was a famine. And suddenly it dawned on them that in order to eat and stay alive, they actually they had to get food. Now, I don't know the last time you were to the grocery store, but in order to eat and stay alive, right, we've got to go to the grocery store. We've got to get food, or we've got to go out in the field, or we've got to go out and kill and eat. It's been a problem for a number of millennia that people have to actually go kill and eat. It's akin to the laundry from last week, right? It's just like always there, the constant need is there. So that's a basic need. It's not a want. It's a basic need. Verse 3. Others were saying, man, we're mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our homes to get grain during the famine. And still others were saying, we've had to borrow money to pay the king's tax on our fields and vineyards. They were using the mechanisms of the day just like we would use the mechanisms of our day, right? We might have to go, we might have to take out a loan. We might have to get another job. We might have to uh, leverage an asset for, for, for another purpose. Back in that day, they didn't have very many opportunities, very many avenues to go down. And so often, they would have to borrow money, and because they didn't have collateral, they became the collateral. So when you hear the term in the Old Testament that the, that the, uh, the borrower is slave to the lender, that comes out of actuality, reality, that borrowers would become slaves to the lender if they couldn't pay it back. And this is what was happening with some of the Jewish believers, some of the Jewish people in Nehemiah's day at the hands of other Jewish people. Verse 5, they're continuing their lament. Although we are of the same flesh and blood as our fellow Jews, and though our children are as good as theirs... Yet we have to subject our sons and daughters to slavery. Some of our daughters, they've already been enslaved. But look at this next phrase. But we are are powerless because our fields and our vineyards belong to others. Throughout the Bible, God has told His people to stand up for the powerless, to fight for the powerless, to speak for those 
who have no voice, to give them voice, to, to get on the side of the oppressed and relieve their oppression, to, to bring mercy and grace to a situation of injustice, to level it out and to bring justice. And yet here, Nehemiah was dealing with his own people where he had come to help, and there are these people that are saying, our brothers and sisters, they're, they're taking advantage of us. They're leveraging us for their own gain. They're profiting off of our struggles. Look what it says in verse 6. Nehemiah says, When I heard their outcry and these charges, and I, you know, I wish I could hear his voice. You can't hear his voice. You don't hear my voice, but we look at the print on the page. Somehow it lacks a little bit in sizzle. But he's like, I was angry. I was angry. He was mad. He was really mad. His anger is going to result in some action that we're about to see. Not bad action, good action. He said, I was, I was just so ticked off. I, I thought about it for a while. I pondered them in my mind. These, these laments, these cries from these people. And then he decided he would accuse the nobles and officials. He would, he would bring an accusation against the people in charge. And he would let them know, this is what you're doing. And, it's, and he becomes the prosecutor to them. Why? Because they were guilty. They were guilty, and he was going to prosecute. The people of God should be the ones who step, who step in between the offender and the offended, right? The, the oppressors and the oppressed. We hear those terms a lot, and often they're used in cultural ways. But these are terms in the Scriptures where God says, stand up for the cause of the weak and the sick and the imprisoned and the foreigner. Stand up for their cause. So he accused the nobles and officials, and I told them, you are charging your own people interest. Now, we hear that, and it's like, oh, we get charged interest all the time. What's, what's the big deal there, Nehemiah? We get charged interest. But in Deuteronomy chapter 23, God was telling his people how he wanted them to live. And he says, don't charge a fellow Israelite interest, whether on money or on money or on food or anything else that may earn that interest. You may charge a foreigner interest, but not a fellow Israelite, so that the Lord your God may bless you in everything you put your hand to in the land you are entering to possess. And I, I bolded that a little bit in a different color. So that the Lord your God may bless you. And Nehemiah has come all this way. And he's working to try and help. And they're doing the very thing that is denying them the blessing of God. The very thing that he wants them to have. He's like, don't do this. What, what are you thinking? Why are you charging interest on your own people? So, he said, I called them together. Uh, I, I called together a large meeting and called them to it, to deal with them, and, and said, listen, as far as possible, we have bought back our fellow Jews who were sold to the Gentiles. You remember this thing called the Babylonian captivity. This captivity was off to the north. They, I mean, they were, they'd come back in a few different waves. A lot of them were back in the land. A lot of them still weren't. Some of them had to be bought with a price and paid for to be able to come back. And Nehemiah said, I've been a part of that. We've, many of us have been a part of making that happen. We bought back our fellow Jews. They were sold to the Gentiles. And now you're selling out your own people. 
only for them to be sold back to us. And look what they did. They kept quiet, head, heads bowed, eyes closed, right? Because they could find nothing to say. They were guilty. This is a great uh, statement right here. They kept quiet. They didn't, they didn't shake their fist in Nehemiah's face. They didn't say, what are you telling us? Why are you telling us what to do? They didn't say, don't come riding in here thinking you're going to tell us what to do. They were convicted by the Word of God out of, out of Nehemiah's mouth. Now, we've got what's recorded here. There was a lot more said. And I, I would be surprised if Nehemiah perhaps didn't qu- quote the law of Moses and specify where they'd fallen down. They kept quiet because they could find nothing to say. It says, Nehemiah says, so I continued. What you're doing is not right. Shouldn't you walk in the fear of our God to avoid the reproach of our Gentile enemies? He had already told the king, why shouldn't I be sad when the, when the city of my ancestors lies in ruins and, it, and, it, and it is a, it's a disgrace. It's a disgrace to the watching world and to the people. And he says, walk in the fear of God and avoid the reproach of our Gentile enemies. I and my brothers and my men, we're also lending the people money and grain. But let us stop charging interest. Now, Nehemiah wasn't charging interest, but these Jews were. And he was saying, don't stop it. This is bad. Don't do this. We're all in this thing together. We're trying, we're trying to rally the city. We're trying to bring it back. And you're doing this. And by the way, these people were over a barrel financially, but more ways than financially. They, could, they couldn't keep up the work on the wall because they had to go back to their fields. They had to go back to their work. They, they were walking, many of them were walking away from their work and their income to help build the wall. And then the Jews that were in charge were, again, making money off them. So here's what he told them to do in verse 11. Give back to them immediately their fields, their vineyards, their olive groves, their houses. And also the interest you're charging them 1% of the money, grain, new wine, and olive oil. Now you read that and you might say, 1%? What in the world? What are they complaining about? I wish I had 1% interest rate on all my stuff. Well, actually, it turns out that it's 1% a month. So that's actually 12%, which for them was an additional burden that they could not bear. And you know, they, they go into debt and they get into servitude and they're never going to pay that back. Like the credit card company that tells you, you only have to pay 2% back on your balance. Because they know that if you pay 2% on your balance, that's the minimum payment, you'll be paying for the next 23.8 years on your $582. And you'll end up paying $4,873 back. Right? I mean, that's the way it works. So he says, give it back to them and give back the interest that you charged. Look at verse 12. Their finest hour. We will give it back. Okay, Nehemiah. We're in this too. You got us. We were trying to pull a fast one. We will give it back. And we'll not demand anything more from them. We will do as you say. Then Nehemiah went a step further. He summons the priests and made the nobles and officials take an oath to do what they had promised. Do you swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth? 
Raise your right hand and repeat after me. And they had to. He made them do it before God and those witnesses that they would do it. Why? Because the heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. And if they could say they would do it without actually having to do it, I mean, that never happens today, right? People say they're going to do something, but then they not just forget, but they purposely decide, if I skirt this way, I don't have to do it. So he had them raise their hand, and he had them take an oath before God. Then he went even a step further in verse 13. He says, I also shook out the folds of my robe and said, In this way, may God shake out of their house and possessions anyone who does not keep this promise. So may such a person be shaken out and emptied. I mean, Nehemiah is serious about this. This is a serious thing. These folks are on on a mission. They've got a vision from God to refortify the, the city, to make it the city of God that it was supposed to be, to make it that shining city on a hill that would spread the light of God to the other nations. They were back in the land. Nehemiah was there. He wanted them to do it. They were going about it the wrong way. And Nehemiah was focused on the vision. He was focused on the mission. So he said, May such a person be shaken out and emptied. If they're not on board, then get off the ship. At this, the whole assembly said, Amen, and praised the Lord, and the people did as they had promised. So, Nehemiah averts another disaster momentarily. It's like each chapter is like an episode or a 30-minute sitcom. And so now he's, he's survived this one, But as we'll see going forward, he's not going to necessarily survive everyone unscathed. He survives, but not unscathed. So notice what Nehemiah did. And this is a great great, uh, process for us. When, When we're on mission, following the vision God's given us, and there are internal threats that become real dangers this is a great approach. Number one, he acted swiftly. He, I mean, he acted swiftly from the start. As soon, as soon as he heard about the problems in chapter 1, he prayed to his God. He was ready to go when the king mentioned it to him. He acted swiftly. He defined the problems. He went right to the people, and he put his big, big fat, juicy finger in their big, fat, juicy chest, and he said, you guys are guilty. And this is what you've done. And it's bad because God isn't going to bless if you do this. And then he called for new behavior. He said, right now, immediately, you've got to give it back. Make it right. So that said to me, what is there in my life? What is there between me and somebody else that I need to make right? And how much time am I giving myself to do it? Oh, I'll get to that next week. Uh, next time I see them, I'll talk to them. You know, he acted swiftly. He defined the problems. He called for new behavior. He moved quickly. You know, if we all did that in our pursuit of unity and reconciliation, how much better off would we be in our relationships? How much better off would, would our families be? Our businesses, our neighborhoods, our churches, our companies, our society, our culture. If when there was an issue, we... We rose up and we addressed the issue. We defended the weak and the poor and one another. We loved our neighbor as ourself. He even went so far as to outline the consequences if it happened again by shaking, shaking his robe. 
And then he led by example in the rest of the chapter. You see that Nehemiah was leading by example. He wasn't asking the people to do anything that he hadn't already done. He's a great example. There's four things here that we talked about earlier that as I look through this passage and I think about my life, I think about our church, I think about our society, our community. Number one, greed, that first one. Greed has no place in the kingdom of God. And greed will never advance us to our vision. It'll, it'll never advance God's vision. Greed won't. Because greed is all about, is it all about love or is it all about self? Greed is all about self. We're never going to win when it's all about self, when we're what's in it for me. So as you deal in your family, that's the closest relationships. Your neighbors, your, your fellow workers, classmates, friends in the neighborhood. Are you greedy? Do you want more than what they have? Do you want to get before they get? Greed has no place. And right there in Nehemiah's context, greed was rearing its ugly head. You know, I don't know if this is true for all Alliance churches, because I've only been in ministry in two of them. But the two that I've been in, it seems as though the people, um, because the next one here is power. Power has no place. It seems as though the people in the two Alliance churches I've been in, they're not greedy, they're givers, and they're not They're not trying to get power. The only power they want is enough like authority or power to to leverage for good. And I found that. And that's not true for all churches. There are a lot of churches where people, they want to get on the board and they want to get in these positions. They want to leverage some kind of authority or power. That's been so refreshing for me in Orange City and for here to see that you want to serve for the good of others. So this, and you want to give. You give. You give to missions. You give to our church. You give to the community. And all your giving isn't reflected just in giving here, but you, you give all over the place. And so that lack of greed, that lack of power paves the way for the blessing of God. But these are things, because the heart is deceitful and desperately wicked, that, that we always have to be aware of. And then the third thing is prejudice. I wish I could say the same thing about prejudice. And I have to start with me, right? I mean, if we're honest, all we got to do is look in the mirror and realize that we love people who look like that guy in the mirror, right? That's a, it's kind of a human condition. You know, we, we just saw this past weekend, this shooting down in New Zealand. Uh, my wife said to me, do you have any listeners in New Zealand? I said, yeah, Murray Woolnaw's down in New Zealand. We've got a number of listeners down in New Zealand to the podcast that we do for pastors. And um, people went into these mosques, and because these people were different, they just shot them up. That is the, that's the epitome. That's pegging the needle on prejudice. Oh, you're not like me. I'm going to kill you. It's horrible. It's terrible. But that, that is resident within all of us, and the Holy Spirit, hopefully the Holy Spirit makes us new and changes us, and, and God can even leverage a little bit of that in us to look at somebody and say, oh, you're different from me. What can I learn from you? Uh, how can I help you? How can I serve you? 
How can we work together? How can we glorify God in our relationship? But that really doesn't happen in society that much. And the people in Nehemiah's day said, our, our kids are as good as their kids. Why are we leveraged and having to put our kids into slavery and use them as collateral when we're Jews and they're Jews and we have the same God and what's going on? Why, why are we prejudged because either they're resentful of us because we've stayed here and we didn't go off into captivity or they're resentful for, for us because we're coming back from captivity like they're afraid of us being here. We're taking up some of their space. So prejudice has no place in God's kingdom. I would encourage you, right, as your pastor, I would encourage you be on the lookout for bias and prejudice and, yes, racism in our own hearts, in our own hearts. I mean, it's, it's just a fact. How we deal with it and how we manage it is the important thing. Whether or not we have any in our heart or life, that's not the question. How we deal with it and how we manage it is the question. The more we're like Jesus and the more we follow those simple commands, right, of loving our neighbor and loving God, the more we can tamp that down. But the more we're greedy and selfish and the more we feed our minds with ideas and ideology and teaching that would pit me against you and us against them, the harder that is to tamp down. And then the last, last one we talked about at the beginning was divisiveness. It, for Nehemiah, he's looking, and they're like, they're being so divisive. They're saying, we're over here, and you're over there. We're different from you. And what did Nehemiah, he came in, and he called them on it. They said, okay, okay, we'll give it all back. We'll give it all back. We're all, we're all even. We're all in the same playing field. Now, None of us are ever on the same playing field necessarily in every way, but divisiveness is the opposite of together. Division, right? Division is the opposite of together. And the name of the series is Together. In Nehemiah, you see the people have to come together, all the families. They all had to come together and work together to accomplish the vision. The same is true for us. But prejudice and bias and racism and divisiveness, that's poison in any group. But the church of God, the church of Jesus Christ, the people that he bought with his blood, that you talk about reconciliation, you talk about bias and prejudice, God in heaven wasn't too good to come down with us, right? We're not too good to stoop to any level to help anybody because we're really all on the same playing field. Playing field. So as we think about divisiveness and prejudice and power, let me make one practical application to our lives today. We're entering the political season again. Oh, we ever left it? <laughs> right? When isn't it, right? When isn't it the political season? It really grieves me and many others to see believers, followers of Jesus, join in that, that cheap, divisive political rhetoric that's just all over social media. I don't see it that much just because of the people that I follow. The other day I was, I was entertained by it again when I got off the beaten path. 
and to see the stuff. And I just thought, oh, I can't look at this. And I'm thinking about the people that are just constantly feeding on that. So there's a person that my wife and I know. They're not from around here. And we spent a lot of time with this person. We spent a lot of time. I spent a lot of time discipling this person. And I got on this person's wall, and it's just like, and it's all these repostings, reposting stuff, pictures and sayings and signs and just all this stuff. And one of them said something like, um, so I went to confession the other day, and I said, Father, forgive me for I have sinned to the priest. Um, I beat the ever-living something out of somebody who, and then the post describes a person who would be opposite them culturally, socially, politically, values. So he's, he's confessing to the priest, I, you know, I beat this person to within an inch of their life, forgive me. To which the priest replies, um, you, you come here to talk to me about your sins, why are you talking to me about your community service? And it's supposed to be funny. Like, like a priest would actually say, or any, any good leader would actually say, that it's your community service to beat on the person that you disagree with. And it's just this kind of stuff over and over and over. And of all groups, we as followers of Jesus should bring peace and wisdom and grace to any sphere that we're in, especially the social media sphere. So a passage like we find at the end of Ephesians should not only just govern our conversation and our lifestyle, but also our social media interactions. It says this, you'll recognize it. It says, don't let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. Can you imagine if that was a policy of Facebook or Twitter? And anything that broke that, they just like took off. There wouldn't be anything up, right? Hardly anything. It says, um, don't grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness and rage and anger and brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. And then it ends like this, be kind and compassionate to one another. How about that? as a prerequisite to post anything on any social media platform. Be kind and compassionate. You know you can actually tell the truth and be kind and compassionate at the same time? You really can. Truly, you wouldn't know it in our society. You wouldn't. But those of us who are believers, those of us who say we follow the King of all people, we should be the ones who are kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as Christ Just as in Christ, God forgave you. So as we go into this season for the next, how long is it going to be? What day day is this? (laughs) Next year and a half, two years? Um, You know, when when we align ourselves with worldly powers, we almost always have to compromise our pure devotion to the power, the kingdom of God, and the king our pure devotion is to the king, not to worldly stuff. Now, I'm not saying not to be political. 
I'm not saying not to be involved in the process. Be involved in the process. Get out there and do your part. Be a good citizen. But in the being and in the doing, don't ever do anything that causes others to say, oh, I don't want to be around that person. They obviously have their thoughts. I'm... So when, you, when we distance ourselves from people, we lose the ability to speak into their lives. Truth. Like Jesus' truth. We lose the ability to influence them toward the love of Christ. Why would we ever want to do We wouldn't ever want to do that. So it's just a thought. Just a thought. Politics always divides, right? By its nature, it divides. But Jesus unites. So let's be good citizens and let's also bring unity and point people to Jesus. Now, speaking of working together for a common cause, there's Nash and Vivian and cute little Sawyer. This is the last episode, the final episode of the Lego series. They had 15 hours to put together the Millennium Falcon, over 7,000 pieces. We've been watching now the last three weeks. I'm very sad that this is the final episode, but I can go back and watch it as many times as I want to. And if you really want to, I'll give you the link as well. But let's pick it up, the very last one here. With half of their time already used up, finishing the Millennium Falcon was starting to seem impossible. We still have a lot more to go. I feel a little bit nervous. If we don't finish today, we need middle schoolers. Ask and you shall receive. With a few hours left in day two, middle schoolers were now here to help. Do you want to sort the pieces or do you want to just go at it? So could you hand me that piece? You're doing fantastic. We are on a roll. It's speeding along because we have more people with us. Wait, we're on bag 15? Yeah. Dang, we're going fast. Thanks to some help from the middle schoolers, some real progress was made. But the truth is, day two is now over, and there's a lot of work yet to be done. What we still have to do is the roofing. We still have to attach all the panels. And we have to build the um, driver's spot, the top gun of the Millennium Falcon. And then we're done. What the kids didn't know is that the middle schoolers agreed to stay late into the night so the kids would surely finish on time. The middle schoolers stayed late last night and made some serious progress. Now, I think yeah. you guys, yeah. you're going to like it a lot. So why don't you guys go check it out and let's start building. Okay. Oh, yeah. Let's do this. Yeah. Oh, 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 oh. Now, with a head start on day three, the kids were surely going to make it. But one question remained. Who would get to put on the last piece? I want to do it. I think we should all do it. What about everybody else that helped build this? Uh, I guess I can go get them.
Sawyer. <laughs> when you need to, just cheat a little. Just cheat a little. Well, they got it done, and it was a great picture of what Nehemiah was up against, right? And, and what, well, what we're still up against. We're still up against. We not only need middle schoolers, we need kids, we need babies, we need older folks, we need even older folks, we need less older folks. Boy, now I'm in trouble. We need, uh, we need young adults. Everybody is needed to finish the project. What's our project? Our project is reaching our community. Our project is engaging the, uh, uh, the uh, emerging generation. Our project is to become, to become a healing place. I, I hope that you will grab that one especially. I hope you grab all of them especially, but this becoming a healing place. I hope that as you're interacting with each other and as you interact with people in the community, you say to yourself, how can, how can a relationship with Community Heights bring healing in this person's life? How can I be a part of creating this place to be a healing place? Our purpose is to mobilize. Our project is to mobilize and serve the community and meet needs in the community. I spent uh, a, an hour plus, two hours maybe, this week with Robbie over at the Discover Hope. And uh, I'm going to be there on uh, the 26th. I think it's a Tuesday night. And I told him, I said, I need to have regular, consistent time when I come here because I really want to get plugged in. I want to see what's going on. I, I want to know what they're doing. And I want to know how to encourage you because they're, they're a major player in rescuing people in our community. And we as a church should be a part of fueling that engine and be a part of supporting what they're doing. We don't have to reinvent the wheel. And we, our project is also expanding our reach so that what we're doing is not just here, but it's out and it's all around the world. We've got to do it together. We're not done with Nehemiah yet. We've still got to finish some of Nehemiah. But together, we can accomplish what it is God's called us to do. Divided, we'll never, ever do it. And the threat comes from within. So we don't so much have to look out. We have to guard our own hearts and guard our collective heart together, loving one another as Jesus loved us. That's the first start. Hey, if you've never, if you as a person have never said to Jesus Christ, Jesus, I believe you. I believe that you are the one who can forgive me of my sins and give me new life. If you've never done that, man, most of us here in this room want you to do it. We want you to believe in Jesus Christ. Jesus said, whoever believes in me has everlasting life. That's a new life new life. So I want to encourage you, when we pray right now, do you need to believe in Jesus? Do you need to, in a sense, inside your heart, bow yourself to God and believe on the Son of God, Jesus Christ, as your Savior? March 17th would be a good day to do it if you've never done it before. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you, Lord, that you bring us together in unity. The, the, the evil one wants to divide us, but you bring us together. And Lord, 
Part of that, in a very small scale, is that you bring each one of us together with you. You want us to be reconciled, to be brought back together in relationship with you. So Lord, I pray that if there's someone here right now that has never, never come to you and said, Lord Jesus, I believe in you. I'm putting my faith in you that your work on the cross will take all my sins away, that my faith in you will give me new life. Lord, I pray that you would work in their heart, that they would be drawn to a God who doesn't demand, but a God who gives, a God who doesn't judge first, but a God who first loves and desires for everyone to come to him. God, I pray that you would do your work in the hearts of people this morning. And if you've never trusted in Jesus this morning, you can trust in him today. In fact, if you have and you've never expressed it, maybe God already knows it because he knows your heart. And if you need to talk to somebody about that, there will be people up at the front. You can talk to me. We'd love to pray with you. We'd love to see you come to faith in Jesus Christ. Lord, help us this week. Help us this week to love others, to serve others, to be the greatest leaders by being the greatest servants, that our church could have a huge impact in our community and broken lives and lost people. In Jesus' name, amen.